Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan. Hello guys, welcome back to this week's episode. Before we get into today's case, let's take a moment to thank all of our existing Patreon supporters and of course our new supporters who have signed up over the last week. So I'll let you do it this week, Beth, and they're quite easy names for you. Oh, good. So thank you so, so much to Holly, Jess, Kelly Goodrick, Kieran Wilson, Laura Boyle-Smith and Faye Armstrong. Thank you so much, everybody who signed up on Patreon. And if you want to join these guys, you can head to patreon.com forward slash seeing red podcast where you can find different tiers of membership. They all come with different benefits and exciting things and competitions and all sorts of stuff. So if you're able to, we would really, really appreciate that. This week, we dive into one of the country's longest unsolved double murder cases. But fear not, justice did prevail in the end. It took a long time, but the dedication and determination of Kent Police paid off, and this case does have a satisfying, if incredibly disturbing, conclusion. Oh, I love this because I really hate it when cases are unsolved, and at least now I can kind of feel a little bit happier in my heart that you're going to give me a resolution at the end. That That does make me feel a little bit happier. However, I've seen I've seen the next word and I'm like, oh God. So I'm get I got a bit happy about that I was gonna get a solved case and I've seen the next word and I feel like it's probably the first time we've looked at this and or, or like in an official capacity, because I think we maybe mentioned in the Jimmy Savile case. But um yeah, this isn't gonna be a very nice episode, is it, Mark? It really isn't. This is sick and not in the way that the kids use that word. We're talking about necrophilia and I'll come on to it in a second, but um, having, I didn't really know an awful lot about necrophilia and obviously I've done some research into it, which has been vile. And the more I've researched into it, the more I actually thought back to the Jimmy Savile episode we did, which was a full uh, Patreon bonus episode. And the more I think that Jimmy Savile was definitely a necrophiliac and he had use of those morgues, didn't he, at various hospitals. So, uh, so yeah, it's been interesting really researching this one. Necrophilia is the attraction towards or a sexual act involving corpses and it's often assumed to be rare but actually no data for its prevalence in the general population exists which is hardly surprising really. It's been theorised that necrophiliac fantasies may occur more often than is generally supposed. That's not to say everyone who fantasises about necrophilia will actually carry out the act but nevertheless a rather disturbing thought. I mean, rather you than me having to research all this, this is not nice at all. Singular accounts of necrophilia in history are sporadic, though written records suggest the practice was present within ancient Egypt. Herodotus writes in the histories that to discourage intercourse with a corpse, ancient Egyptians left deceased beautiful women to decay for three or four days before giving them to the embalmers. And in the ancient world, sailors returning corpses to their home country were often accused of necrophilia. So there are these ancient texts that kind of indicate this is something that's been going on for hundreds or thousands of years, which is, again, very disturbing thought. Necrophilia is probably more prevalent than you might think, and certainly after hearing today's case, which features a seemingly normal man defiling the corpses of over a 100 women and girls, you might just be inclined to agree. This really is a cautionary tale that proves that although you might think you know someone, you never really can be sure what goes on behind closed doors. I think I know which case you're covering. Is it quite recently been solved? Yeah, it's it's come to light very recently. Do you know what? I'm really glad you're covering this, but oh god, gross. I was not not mentally prepared for this, I'm going to be honest. I'm not going to go into loads of specific detail regarding the abuse, but we kind of skirt around it and touch on it a bit so it's still a very disturbing episode for sure yeah but equally I'm really glad you're covering this because I did want to know more and I do want to know more Mary and Helena Kande were brimming with excitement as they disembarked the ferry that had brought them to these shores from their home country of France in Easter 2014 The girls, aged 16 and 22 respectively, were sisters who along with their parents had arrived in the UK for a short break As the family drove out of the port in Kent, the girls talked excitedly about all of the things they hoped to do in England during their brief visit. Like most girls their age, they loved clothes and were looking forward to visiting the British High Street and particularly the fast fashion retailer Primarni. I I was going to say, do you say Primark or Primark? Oh, you're a Primark, aren't you? I'm a Primark. I say Primark because I'm normal. (laughs) 
Mary and Helen were beautiful, vibrant girls who had so much to offer the world. But their lives were cut dramatically short within an hour of disembarking that ferry when a lorry ploughed into their car, killing them instantly. It was a violent and bloody death. Oh my God, I was not expecting that. I know, I, I, I'm really sorry. And that, that is the only joke we'll have about Primarni because it just gets really serious from right here on. Um, but yeah, just, just tragic. They'd been here an hour and they were on the motorway in Kent and a lorry just went into their car and they, they died instantly at the scene. And it was a violent and, and very bloody death. And their father actually would also go on to lose his life just two weeks later as a result of his injuries. And it was only the girl's mother, Nike, who would survive that crash. Oh, bless her. This is, of course, a tragic story. The lorry driver would go on to be jailed for causing the crash. But it's not he who haunts Nike Akande, the girl's mother. It's a man named David Fuller an unassuming maintenance worker at the hospital in Kent where her daughters were taken following the crash in which they lost their life so tragically and so violently. As Nike Akande wrestled with her unimaginable grief in the days and weeks that followed her harrowing triple loss, David Fuller let himself into the morgue where her daughters' bodies were being stored, took them out of the refrigerator and defiled them in the most grotesque way imaginable. David Fuller filmed himself sexually assaulting both of the girls' corpses. He posed the bodies in different positions in order to facilitate the multitude of disgusting sexual acts he inflicted on them. And he even attached a TENS machine to himself and the girls in order to achieve a heightened orgasm. I didn't even know that was a thing. And that is just, obviously what he's doing is disturbing beyond imagination, but the fact that he's using an everyday pain-relieving device for his own sexual gratification and attaching it to the girls and his own genitalia to achieve a heightened orgasm is just... I really have no words and it really shocked me. And it's also the the filming himself as well. Like, I don't know, I don't know why that kind of hits me as well. Like, that's just... The fact that he's then getting off on watching this back as well is like continuing to abuse these girls even after he's done it oh it's just horrendous oh my god in nearly 200 episodes we have covered some seriously sick shit but i really think this is right up there with the very worst it could possibly be the worst and this happened in 2014 in an nhs hospital in kent the garden of england this isn't something that happened 50 years ago 40 years ago before cctv This is very much in recent times. And a maintenance worker who had a criminal record was able to enter the morgue of not one, but two hospitals and sexually assault possibly hundreds of corpses over many years, possibly even decades. Oh, God. This is truly shocking stuff, but we've only just scratched the surface. I feel like that would be enough. Like that would be enough to make a horrendous episode. Oh, there's so much more to this, yeah. Mm-hmm. There's not just necrophilia, there is worse, really. Our story begins in the 1980s, a time when England was convulsed by a social and political revolution. It was a decade that bore witness to big hair and banging tunes, an era of excess and opportunity. The summer of 1987 was pretty dire across England, with significant rainfall and chilly temperatures persisting, particularly throughout June. The looming grey clouds of that summer mirrored the gloominess of 25-year-old Wendy Nell's damp and depressing bedsit on Guildford Road in Tunbridge Wells in Kent. Wendy rarely invited people over, such was her embarrassment at her domestic surroundings. Her life hadn't really turned out the way that she had planned. At 25, she was divorced, living alone and childless, which back in the 80s probably was a worse thing than it would be now, for sure, at at that age. And I'm not saying anyone has to have children to fulfil themselves. I'm just saying for her, that was something she really wanted. Oh, bless her. I feel sad for her. Yeah, she um, she longed to be a mum and a homemaker. And she really thought that at 25, she would have it all. She'd be living in suburbia, in domestic bliss. But as we know all too well, life doesn't always work out the way that we want it to. Oh, I feel sorry for Wendy. And I feel like it's not going to get any better for her. It really isn't. Despite the recent turbulence in her personal life, Wendy was doing well professionally. She ran a branch of super snaps around the corner from her bedsit on the Camden Road, and she was good at a job. She was reliable, friendly, and very well organised. Oh, see, that makes me happier now that that there is some good for her. 
yeah, real purpose in her life. And she was the manageress. Mm-hmm. And I, I love using those old 80s terms. I was going to say, as if you'd say that nowadays. <laughs> yeah, it's like, what the fuck? Uh, but she was, she was a manageress, so she ran the whole store and she did a great job at it. Following the collapse of Wendy's marriage, she found love again, you'll be pleased to know, Bethan, with a man called Ian. And she was hoping for a second chance, to marry and have children and to erase her early 20s and to start again. But very sadly, it wasn't to be for Wendy. On the night of Monday, the 22nd of June in 1987, Wendy's short life came to an abrupt end. The day had started out like any other for Wendy. She left a bedsit at 8.30 that morning for her 15-minute walk to work. That Monday, a new assistant had started and Wendy was busy showing her the ropes. Later that day, she visited a customer and then popped to the bank during her lunch break. It was all pretty unremarkable. After work at 6pm she went home to collect some laundry. When she left, she left the window open, which wouldn't really close as the latch had been painted over multiple times. There was easy access to the back of her house, which had been divided into nine small bedsits. Wendy's was on the ground floor and backed onto a poorly lit alleyway. Over the past few weeks and months there had been several reports of a peeping Tom in the area, and in fact just 24 hours earlier there had been a strange incident at a house less than 50 yards away. A 19-year-old was alone in her room when her doorbell rang. She answered the front door, only to be greeted by a strange-looking man who told her that she shouldn't leave her window open, especially in the bedroom, the implication being that he'd been spying on her. Oh, that's really creepy. A really creepy thing. You you don't hear of peeping toms anymore nowadays, do you? I guess because there's like CCTV everywhere and you're more likely to get caught or maybe you don't want to risk it because you you might be videoed and then it's plastered all over social media or something. But you just don't hear of it, do you? But I wonder if part of it is the ready availability of porn on the internet so people can get a fix that way. But if I think... You don't need to. I mean, the amount of times, Bethan, that I just walk into my kitchen completely naked, there's two windows in there... And I'm always walking around like that. So, oh, if, great. no, I'm sorry, but if someone was spying <laughs> on joking. my house, they'd see everything. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, so I can sort of understand the logic of a peeping tom in that, with patience and perseverance, they would mm-hmm. see uh, probably naked people. But yeah, I think because yeah. we've got the internet now, um, ready ready availability of porn, it's just not necessary, which is a good thing. But that is that would be really because I'm a bit like you. I definitely would just like wander around naked and then if someone then knocked on my door and was like shouldn't leave your curtains open in your bedroom or something like that I would then be thinking like oh my god did they did I just walk past that window like was what happened like what did they see you'd feel really violated I think so even not knowing for definite what they did or didn't do or see yeah and I think for this 19 year old very young woman I think that's probably probably what she was thinking oh my god what have I been doing in that bedroom I've left the curtains open and the window open um so yeah it would have been horrible experience for her and and also really weird for somebody to just ring your doorbell and and say that to you and I've seen the reconstruction of this on crime watch and he's a really weird guy and the actor who plays him plays it so well so by eight o'clock on the Monday evening Wendy was finishing her washing in the rust hall laundrette which was a couple of miles away from her home Her boyfriend Ian lived close by with his mother and for the rest of the evening all three of them watched TV together. Back in the alleyway behind Guildford Road, the uh, road where Wendy's bedsit was on, a couple of hours later that evening a neighbour of Wendy's spotted a man trying to peep through a window in the house opposite. The prowler watched for some time before he was eventually disturbed and scarpered. Three quarters of an hour later at 11.15pm Wendy's boyfriend dropped her home and he could never have foreseen that he was delivering his girlfriend into the hands of death that night. It's very possible that Wendy's attacker was already in her bedsit when she arrived home, perhaps hiding in a wardrobe or behind a door ready to pounce, having earlier let himself through her open window. We'll never know. Oh, I hate things like that, Mark, because now I'm just going to be thinking about, like, every closed door, and it's just horrible, isn't it? It's such a... It just makes your blood run cold to imagine her like saying goodbye to Ian, have a little kiss on the doorstep and then off she goes into the house thinking like, I'll just go straight to bed. Probably like not 
I think it would have been potentially a bit awkward for him to get through that window. So if he was attempting to do that whilst Wendy was in her bedsit, it would have been very noticeable. She would have Mm -hmm. been able to run. So I think he most likely was lying in wait for her, probably going through her chest of drawers, her wardrobe and touching her underwear, that kind of thing, clearly. So as I said, we, we never really will know for definite, but that is highly likely. What we do know is that Wendy was attacked shortly after arriving home. She was thumped over the back of the head with a blunt instrument and strangled to death. There were no signs of a struggle. Death would have come quick for Wendy, but it wouldn't necessarily spell the end of her attack. As the blood drained from Wendy's body through the hole in her head, it soaked through a pillow on her bed and permeated the air of her damp, dingy flat. Intoxicated, her attacker proceeded to sexually assault her corpse in every way imaginable. And I really just can't bring myself to go into detail here, but whatever you are imagining, I can assure you it's worse. Because Wendy's body was defiled and dehumanised that night, and her attacker only fled the scene when he had satisfied every aspect of his sexual deviancy. In the weeks and months that followed, detectives launched an investigation and appealed for information, but no strong leads were forthcoming. Sure, several people came forward with reports of a prowler in the area, but descriptions varied, and of course, in the 1980s, there was no CCTV to speak of. Wendy's boyfriend Ian was quickly ruled out as a suspect, and although a number of items were missing from Wendy's flat, her diary and some keys, burglary was quickly ruled out as a motive, because they were just obviously low-value items. While Wendy's killer had left a bloodied footprint on one of her blouses and a bloody fingerprint on a shopping bag, as well as semen on her body, DNA was in its infancy and pretty quickly the trail went cold. Oh my god, I mean, that is just... I have no words. That's just Yeah, it really is. Some of the worst shit we've ever covered. Mm-hmm. Tunbridge Wells was, and still is, a market town, known for its impressive Georgian and Victorian architecture. It was not an area synonymous with murder and mayhem, and in the months that followed Wendy's death, a black cloud hung over the town. Women became fearful for their safety, particularly as the autumn months approached and darkness descended. A killer was on the loose, and surely it would only be a matter of time before he would strike again. And strike again he did. Just five months later, in December 1987, another woman was found dead in very similar circumstances to Wendy and she lived just a mile away from Wendy's bedsit on Guildford Road. Caroline Pierce was 20 years old and worked as a manager at Buster Brown's, an American restaurant on the Camden Road, the very road on which Wendy had worked as a manageress of Supersnaps. Buster Brown's and Supersnaps were just a quarter of a mile apart, and although the two women hadn't known each other, it's very possible that their paths had crossed. Perhaps Wendy had been served by Caroline during a visit to Buster Brown's, the two exchanging pleasantries, Maybe Wendy had developed Caroline's photos or served her in the shop. The two women may have even queued together at the same bank. Who knows? I just find it so weird that their paths would most likely have crossed at some point or on several occasions in the months preceding their deaths. Two strangers in life who would go on to be forever linked in death. Isn't that oh, a weird absolutely, thought? Because you think of, I mean, that is incredibly poetic, just going to say, but... You think of like when we when we worked and we'd see the same people walk past every morning, every afternoon, there'd be people who we don't know them. We didn't we might not even know where they worked, but we'd recognize them. Um, when I'd walk to work, I'd see the same people every day and we'd always nod and say hi. I don't know those people. I could then possibly be served by them in Asda and not recognize them because they're out of the place that I'm used to seeing them. And yeah, you it makes you think, doesn't it, about just how many people you come into contact with. But for these two women to then, yeah, be so completely linked historically then going forward, yeah. And I just think they were almost living these parallel lives. So Mm. both young women in their early 20s or mid-20s, career focus. Yeah, going about their job. Manageresses. Manageresses. Within a quarter of a mile from each other, they were spending Mm -hmm. eight, nine hours a day working and then living a mile from each other. And then what would bring them together in the afterlife was this brutal, heinous crime. Yeah. Caroline was a bright, caring, compassionate young woman on the cusp of proper adulthood. She had a job she loved, a large group of friends and everything to live for. 
but like Wendy before her, her life would come to a brutal and untimely end in the most gruesome circumstances imaginable. Like Wendy, Caroline lived in a bedsit on the ground floor of a converted house. On Tuesday the 24th of November in 1987, after finishing her shift at Buster Brown's, Caroline went out for the evening with a group of friends. She arrived home by taxi at approximately midnight and she was attacked on a doorstep as she fumbled for her keys. Some neighbours heard a commotion, a young woman screaming and shouting no repeatedly, but they didn't go to investigate. Caroline was quickly bundled into a car by her attacker and driven away into the night. This is one of those things where so often people make comments and there's so much victim blaming of, you know, walking home alone, putting yourself in danger. But she literally got a taxi and was on her doorstep about to go into her house and she's been bundled into a car. Just makes you think, doesn't it? Like nobody's ever safe ever, like anywhere. It's crazy. Um, yeah, she she should never have, have had to compromise her life or her lifestyle because there's a prowler on the loose or she lives in a ground floor bedsit. She should be able to go about her life, living it to its fullest and just taking a normal regard for her safety that we all would. So, yeah, very sad and, and very different, really, to Wendy's murder because, as I said, Caroline was bundled into a car by her attacker and driven away. And we don't know exactly what happened to Caroline or where it happened, but we do know that she too was beaten around the head with a blunt instrument, asphyxiated and sexually assaulted, just like Wendy had been before her. But how quickly that happened after her abduction is anyone's guess. It is likely that she too was sexually assaulted post-mortem, but how long she was conscious for before death came calling remains unknown. It's cruel to torture oneself with the knowledge that Caroline was most likely alive and conscious as she was driven away, but that is probably how it played out for her. She would have been tortured with terror and and panic as she Mm -hmm. was uh, yeah, raced away from her home probably sat next to her attacker or in the back of the car or the boot, who knows. Caroline's body was found three weeks after she'd disappeared on the 15th of December in Romney Marsh, a sparsely populated wetland area approximately 40 miles from Tunbridge Wells. She was naked except for a pair of tights and her clothes, keys and passport were all missing. Caroline's body was found in a watery ditch, meaning her body had decayed considerably in the three weeks since she'd been murdered. Nearly all DNA evidence had been lost in that time, except for trace amounts of semen found on the inside of her tights. But as I said, DNA science was in its infancy at this time, and it would actually take decades before a detailed profile could be built and Wendy and Caroline's killer brought to justice. In the months following the murders, the residents of Tunbridge Wells were on high alert. The national press had picked up on the story and after police had publicly linked the two murders, the newspapers had christened them the Bedsit Murders. An air of suspicion and fear descended on the town. Was a serial killer on the loose? There had been two murders already. Would a third follow? Maybe even a fourth or a fifth? Despite the understandable sense of foreboding amongst the residents of Tunbridge Wells, their fear was ultimately misplaced. There were no more murders and life in the town slowly but surely got back to normal. The police were no closer to catching the killer, but whoever it was, he had clearly stopped, or at least moved to another part of the country, to terrorise another unsuspecting community. God, I wonder how long it took as well for the local, like for local women to kind of try and get back to normal, or... I don't know. I don't know. If, know, I don't know if some ever would. Some would have been yeah. scarred for that for the rest of scarred by it for the mm-hmm. rest of their lives for sure. So there is a reason why the murder stopped in 1987, which I will come on to later. And it might not be the definitive reason, but I think it does explain this sudden about turn. In the years and decades that followed the Bedsit murders, the police periodically conducted fresh appeals, although without much success, and whilst the case was drastically scaled down, it was never closed. No unsolved murder case in the UK's ever closed down. In the late noughties, Kent police formed a cold case team and re-examined the evidence from both crime scenes. They made a fresh appeal on Crime Watch, but sadly their efforts were in vain. Too much time had passed, memories had faded, and the killer had clearly kept his gob shut. No further murders had or have ever been linked to the Bedsit murders. But could it really be the case that one man had killed two women in the space of five months, engaged in necrophilia, and then simply gotten on with his life, never to do the same again. 
In 2019, following further advances in DNA science, the case was reopened. The sperm sample taken from the inside of Caroline's tights was minute and damaged, to use a scientific term, but forensic experts had developed new techniques for building full DNA profiles from such samples. Consequently, a full DNA profile was built and cross-referenced against the 6.5 million records on the National DNA Database, but it failed to find a match. Whoever this was had clearly kept his head down since 1987. That is mind-blowing, isn't it, really? Because even though I know a little bit about this and like what, you know, we talked about those two girls in 2014 who Mm. had died, the fact that he could kill twice and then didn't go on to do that again, like that really is, it just shocks me, absolutely shocks me that from 1987 onwards he at least, you know, hadn't been obvious. I don't know if you're going to tell me there were other crimes, but no, at least hadn't left any evidence. If not, just didn't do that again. Like That is really mad. It is. I, I'm going to come into it in a lot of detail very shortly, and I think you will understand why. Um, so, uh, so we'll carry on a little bit and then we'll get there, certainly. Sorry, I'm trying to jump ahead, but I'm just naughty, I'm naughty. so fascinated by this. <laughs> So, um, so yeah, they'd, they'd cross-reference this DNA profile against the National DNA Database, six and a half million records on there, no match. And yeah, that is interesting that not only had, had this guy not committed any further murders, but he'd not kind of fucked up at any point in the preceding 33 years and had a traffic violation that had caused him to be arrested and his fingerprints taken and DNA taken. Nothing, you know, complete clean record. Um, All was not lost, however, because there were advances in familial DNA science, which meant that it was now worth checking his profile for a familial match again. A previous search had failed to produce results, but this time it would be very different. The National Crime Agency scoured the National DNA database and compiled a list of a thousand people who had DNA that was similar to the DNA obtained from the crime scenes. Using a suite of complex formulae, the list was reduced to 90 individuals, who were each visited by police. The individuals were asked to provide fresh DNA samples, and they were also quizzed about their families and asked to provide a family tree. One individual said he had a brother who had links to Tunbridge Wells at the time of the murders. When his DNA profile was checked against that of the killers, it was ascertained that there was a billion to one chance that the killer would not be his brother. That brother was David Fuller, the sadistic necrophiliac we met at the top of this episode, hooked up to a TENS machine, defiling the bodies of Helen and Mary Akande. That is crazy, isn't it, to think so? It was like a billion to one chance that this killer was not his brother. Yeah, it's conclusive. It's so unlikely, you know, it's really, really conclusive that this is going to be your brother. I just find DNA science incredible. It's so amazing, isn't it? What I find amazing is that there are just all the time there are advances and you'd think that we kind of discover that science, that's it. It works or it doesn't work. But every year, it seems, there are these further advances and people like David Fuller must hear about these advances in the news and think, shit, um, I know I will have left trace evidence at the crime scenes. That obviously hasn't worked so far, but what if these advances mean that it works now? Which is clearly what 100%. happened. Yeah. So despite it taking 33 years to nail David Fuller, I thought this was really a surprisingly underwhelming end to the investigation because it was like an overnight success that had actually taken three decades to achieve. There wasn't any kind of drama in this. It was just a DNA sample taken. It matched this guy a bit. So we go and interview him. He's got a brother who was living in Tunbridge Wells at the time of the murders. And we then do a bit more digging and find out there's a billion to one chance that 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 wouldn't be the man. So I thought it was just a bit underwhelming personally. Yeah, but what do you, like, what else would it be? Yeah, it's not going to be some, like, he jumps over the fence and starts running and the police have to chase him because he's 66 by this point. Yeah. He's not the young man he was back then. This is true. This is true. But I do know what you mean. It does. But however, what I would say is probably within those briefing rooms, within the team that got the go ahead to go and arrest him, within the emails back and forth from the scientists to the police and the confirmation for them, I imagine that it probably was, you know, very 
overwhelming rather than underwhelming. Yeah. yeah. I know that's not the right word, but do you know what I mean? I think like, overwhelming. Maybe for us, it's exciting. It's not as exciting, but I feel like, can you imagine being on that police team where you're like, oh my god, it's come back as as him. And that agonising wait. I think it took thirty six hours for. Um, for a definitive result. So that agonising weight of, well, everything else is fitting, the profile fits, the age fits. He was living and working around the area at the time of the murders and you're just waiting for the definitive yes or no and then it comes. It would have been incredibly exciting for, for that investigation team, yeah. So David Fuller was nicked in December 2020 at the home he shared with his third wife and their teenage son in Heathfield in West Sussex. When officers arrived, they marched into his living room and arrested him. From stills taken from officers' body cams, Fuller does not look the least bit surprised by their presence. And I just wanted to go off on a bit of an aside here, because we've spoken about this quite a lot recently, uh, of people who commit crimes and get away with it, and whether they are constantly looking over their shoulder, do they jump when that doorbell goes, or do they just revel in their own genius, 100% certain that they will never be apprehended. Probably the last one, the wankers. Well, probably. If they're people like him. If it was like a one-off, like you've made one mistake. I'm not so sure because I think with Fuller, he wasn't... If you look at the stills from the officer's body cams when they burst into his living room and arrest him, maybe it was shock, but he looks a bit resigned to it. And I wonder if he was always waiting for his day of reckoning and whether there was some kind of relief when it came. I don't know. Maybe mm. that's my fantasy of it. I don't know. Maybe you just think too too nicely about people. Yeah, even him. Anyway, after arresting Fuller, officers carted him off to the station and began to interview him. He claimed he didn't know Tunbridge Wells very well, despite it being the next major town along. And he said he had not visited the Super Snap shop or dined at Buster Brown's. And he said he was certainly not involved in these two murders. But his story soon came unstuck when scenes of crimes officers found diaries at his house which documented every aspect of his life. Honestly, and and it was almost an obsessive amount of documentation. So there was clearly some sort of OCD over, over element of control here. And these diaries proved that he had been a regular patron at Buster Brown's in the months leading up to Caroline Pierce's murder, most likely stalking her for some time. Maybe Caroline knew him by sight or even by name. Maybe he even asked her about herself as she brought him over his order. She could never have known this monster would one day murder her in cold blood. And it's just a really chilling thought that, yeah, she she might have thought he was a bit weird. She might have thought he was a lovely guy, but he was obsessed with her. And it's likely that she did know him, at least by sight, if not by name, and that he kind of pumped her for information and found out where she lived. And he had been stalking her for weeks or months before he murdered her. During questioning, it was established that Fuller had been a member of a cycling club. And when fellow members were interviewed, they described routes they had followed back in the mid-80s, including through Romney Marsh, where Caroline's body had been found. Clearly, Fuller was familiar with the area. Fuller's obsession with documenting every aspect of his life would prove to be his ultimate downfall. Amongst 34,000 printed photographs found at his home was one showing him lying on his stomach on a sunny day in the 1980s, his feet upturned and the soles of his clerk's shoes exposed. The pattern matched the print found in Wendy's flat. Oh my god, what an Honestly. Absolute... That is incredible. Also, it makes me wonder if he ever got any of these printed at Super Snaps as well, because it would make sense that he would have done. He would, yeah, I'm sure he would. If he was a regular on the Camden Road in Tunbridge Wells and he was going to Buster Brown's to eat and drink, yeah, he he had 34,000 photos developed. So I think that's probably how he encountered Wendy. I reckon so. That's what I feel like. Yeah, I think so. And I think I, I do actually come on to it in the script a bit later to sort of set that scene really that that it is likely that Wendy knew him and that he would come in and was a regular and again a bit like it was for Caroline. Did she regard him as the local weird guy that talked to her a bit too much and asked too too many questions about her or was he just this lovely guy and a regular and he would come in and it would be oh hello David hello Mr Fuller and again she would never have realized that you know hiding behind that facade was an absolute fucking monster oh anybody who works in customer service kind of knows of those customers you 
you know and you feel like you know them really well but actually you don't at all and yeah or maybe like they'd all be kind of like oh that Mr Fuller's brought in a big stack of pictures of himself lying around looking yeah. at the sunshine and he's brought in another month's worth of photos of himself that he's a bit of a weirdo or yeah. like oh how lovely that nice old man that always chats I, you just don't know which way it went and it's just a horrible thought really isn't it Despite these shoes being made by quite a well-known brand, Clark's, they were actually, there was only a limited run of them, so they were actually quite rare. So it wasn't really much of a defence to say, well, every man had those shoes back in the late 80s. There was a limited run of them. And eventually Fuller's fingerprint would be found to be a partial match to the bloody print found on the shopping bag in Wendy's flat as well. And really the case became overwhelming when a DNA sample taken from Fuller matched DNA in the semen collected decades before from Caroline's tights. This was conclusive, yeah. Fuller was responsible for both of these murders and after 33 years the bedsit murders had been solved. And if I could end the episode here I would, but of course this is only really half of the story. Earlier we discussed how Fuller's mini-murder spree ended abruptly in November 1987 when he abducted and murdered Caroline Pierce. We hypothesised whether it really was possible for a man to commit two murders in the space of five months, carry out sadistic acts of necrophilia, and then just stop. Well, in this instance, the answer to that question is yes, it is possible. It was possible, because Fuller's motive for murder was necrophilia. He had an uncontrollable urge to have sex with dead people. People who couldn't answer back, people who couldn't judge him or say no, and without a ready supply of dead bodies, of course he had no choice but to go out and murder women in order to satisfy his despicable urges. But all that changed, of course, just 12 months after the death of Caroline Pierce, when Fuller applied for a job as a maintenance worker at the Kent and Sussex Hospital, where he worked from 1989 to 2010. And this job gave him access to all areas of of the hospital, including the morgue. With a ready supply of dead bodies, he now had no need to go out and murder in order to satisfy his necrophilia. That does make sense. And that actually almost like the murder was the the means to... To the ultimate goal. uh, Yeah, his ultimate goal wasn't the murder. And potentially, because he wants to be a necrophiliac, he's, you know, he wants people who are entirely submissive submissive like actually trying to murder someone must be quite difficult for someone like that because you're having to to kill you're having to wrestle somebody and hurt yeah. somebody and they're fighting back so that's like the is he's not like a rapist who enjoys the struggle or something it's that's really interesting you're so right you've hit the nail on the head and i did have a bit in here sort of explaining and it didn't really make an awful lot of sense how i'd written it so i just took it out but very briefly quite often a necrophiliac will have low self-esteem issues um Mm -hmm. so that could be related to uh, a significant loss in their life that can then cause them to have this primal fear of being rejected so that's why they seek out uh, a sexual partner in inverted commas who is complicit and won't be able to say no and won't be able to judge them and you're right with with him murdering both Wendy and Caroline that would have been way outside of his comfort zone because there would have been the danger that they could have fought back and that would have been incredibly embarrassing for him so um yeah you know you can see why he went into the job that he went into in 1989 and such a calculated move. However, we can't deny the fact that had he not gone into a job like that with a ready availability of corpses, this guy would have had no choice but to continue murdering. So I do think more lives would have been lost. Oh, it's such a fucking like rock and a hard place kind of situation, isn't it? It really There's is. There's no like There's no good perfect thing out solution of this at here. All, no. Apart from for him to fuck off. Well, yeah, there is that. So we don't know if Fuller abused corpses uh, after starting that job in the late 1980s and then throughout the 1990s. Evidence that I'll go on to detail confirms that he was a prophylic necrophiliac between 2008 and 2020. But the fact that no further murders were linked to the bedsit murders following the death of Caroline Pierce in 1987 and knowing Fuller's motivations for murder, I wouldn't be surprised if he was able to satisfy his necrophilia from that time onwards without the need for murder deep in the morgue of the hospital in in Kent. I think so. I think you're right. We don't know for sure, but... 
But the fact that the murder stopped says that he was getting a ready supply elsewhere. By the time officers had finished searching Fuller's house, they had amassed a library of unimaginable sexual depravity, all catalogued over 100 hard drives, 1,300 CDs, 2,200 floppy disks, 30 mobile phones, thousands of printed photographs, negatives, slides and camera film rolls. The contents of the hard drives alone equated to 23 terabytes of digital material. And I don't know how much a terabyte is, but I'm guessing it's a fucking shitload. Yeah. Just a lot, Mark, a lot. And to put this in context, it took six officers working on four specially purchased high-powered machines 12 months to process 95% of the material. And what an horrific job to have to do. Oh my God, I know, like... What the fuck? Those poor police officers. Officers also found diary entries in which Fuller had written details of his hospital victims who ranged from a girl aged nine to a hundred-year-old woman. And despite denying this, he had stalked a lot of these people on social media after he had defiled them. So he would get obsessed with who were they in life. And a lot of the victims were... Uh, well, they they would be all ranges of, of age and they would come from all different backgrounds and the circumstances of their deaths were varied. So there were lots of women who had died by suicide, for example, which made me particularly sad because they have had this desperate and tortured end to their life. And then in death, it is continued. And that that made me incredibly sad. Some of the women had endured or suffered really violent deaths like the two sisters I talked about earlier so there would have been horrific injuries on their bodies Um, some of them had been mutilated in different ways and he abused some victims prior to autopsy post-autopsy and there, there were some specific victims who he abused both before and afterwards and also he would abuse them um, after a family had perhaps been to see their relative in the morgue. He he took great pleasure in abusing those victims afterwards, knowing that just hours earlier, their relatives had been stood around that body. From 2011 until 2020, Fuller worked at Pembury Hospital as an estate supervisor. He knew which parts of the morgue were covered by CCTV and carried out his abuse out of shot, the majority of which he filmed. The fridges used to store the bodies of deceased patients had doors at each end. One end was covered by CCTV, but the other, where post-mortem examinations took place, was not. Fuller seemed to have known this. Detectives found no footage from the hospital of Fuller's offending, but footage from his own collection, as well as detailed records of names and ages that he'd made, helped them to identify at least 80 people whose bodies had been cruelly defiled. Fuller eventually confessed to his sickening activities, how could he not with all of that evidence, and admitted to police that he could not remember when it started or how many people he'd abused. He insisted his motives were not sexual, but refused to discuss the abuse further. And of course, that's complete bollocks because, you know, he was hooking up a TENS machine to these corpses and to his genitalia to achieve orgasm. Yeah, And you're, you're sexually abusing the court like it's clearly there's clearly a sexual element of course there to is it, that's what it's about sake. it's not power these are dead people they're bodies yeah so a police hotline was set up to deal with hundreds of calls from the worried families of deceased people who had been treated at both the kent and sussex hospital where fuller was employed between 1989 and 2010 and the pembury hospital where he'd been employed from 2011 until his arrest Over the following months, dozens of families were told that their loved ones had been abused post-mortem by Fuller. They were supported, of course, I think 150 family liaison officers were involved, but many of them said they wished they had never been told, which I totally get. And I'm just going to talk from the point of view of of the um, daughter of a victim now, and she Mm -hmm. said this in court. I've asked myself in the past few weeks whether it would have been better if we had never known. If Fuller's crimes had been covered up by the police. After all, he would have gone to prison for life for the murders anyway. Perhaps they did the searches of his hard drive a little too well that day. Yet it is an impossible question. If we had never known, our loved ones would never have got justice. And his depravity did help secure his murder convictions for the families of Caroline Pierce and Wendy Nell, who have suffered for the past three decades. She went on to say, My only comfort is that mum knew nothing of what was being done to her in the hospital mortuary. 
I had just had a baby a few months before she died and my partner told me on the night she passed away he saw a figure of mum bent over our daughter's cot. That gives me some comfort that mum had long departed her human body by the time Fuller had got his hands on her. Sadly for the families of Caroline Pierce and Wendy now that was not the case. And I just Oh bless her. I mean yeah. how incredibly strong to be able to even publicly talk about something like this and to have found some way to give herself some comfort. And she didn't she's not named, obviously. Um but I just loved how I loved this idea or whether it happened, whatever, that that her partner saw her mum bending over the cot of their newborn daughter on the night that she died and the way that this woman is able to get such peace from that that mom's soul had departed her body and her body was just this physical mass of flesh and whatever it was it wasn't her by the time fuller got his hands on her i just yeah i just loved how she described it um and and that that will give her some peace i really hope So Fuller was found guilty of both murders and of course of numerous charges in relation to necrophilia and he was given a whole life tariff and it was widely speculated that he had used the super snapshot where Wendy now had worked to get his photos developed as we talked about earlier and yeah perhaps like Caroline Pierce she knew him by sight or by name and perhaps she looked at him as that awkward customer who showed a little too much interest in her. We'll never know for sure, but again, it is likely that he stalked Wendy Nell for some time before finally killing her, and that that's where he first encountered her at that super snap shop. So I'm not going to bore you with details about David Fuller's life. He came across as a fairly normal guy to those who knew him. He had affairs and multiple children with multiple women over the years, but he was pretty... Okay. Yeah. I wasn't really sure that he'd actually managed to have, like a normal relationship and normal sexual encounters so that's interesting i know you said like when he was arrested his son and his wife but it's interesting to see almost like had affairs multiple children multiple women actually that's he's like i don't know how to say it properly but like more than average like a lot of men will have one or two partners that and they are going to stick with their wife or their husband for the rest of their life and he's gone bouncing around yeah i mean three wives um four children and i think it what one wedding was in barbados he traveled around he appeared to imagine be imagine finding husband. this out about your ex-husband though well his wife at the time of his arrest went on to divorce him obviously and was just she did an interview in a newspaper which i read and she obviously was just blindsided by this she had never suspected him no one had suspected anything like this from him and officers also found you know a huge amount of paedophilic material on those you know memory sticks floppy disks etc so he was also a prolific paedophile whether he acted that out outside of the morgue i don't know but you know he was just the fact that he was a prolific paedophile is shocking and no nobody had any inclination not not least his his wife at the time who was i think 50 at the time of his arrest so a little bit younger and i i feel for his children as well who i don't know what their relationship was like with their father but they would have regarded him as their dad a, a normal guy i'm sure so um so yeah this was just truly shocking Um, Interestingly, Fuller did commit a number of burglaries in the 1970s and he was prosecuted for those. I think he spent some time in prison. So he did have a criminal record when he was employed uh, by the NHS in 1989 and they were heavily criticised later on um, for not having conducted further DBS checks. Um, when he was moved to another site, for example, in 2010, they should have, or 2011, they should have done further checks and they didn't. So they were heavily criticised for that. And of course, investigations were conducted. But he was also, yeah, of course, it was assumed that he was that peeping Tom in Tunbridge Wells around the time of the murders. And it's kind of, um, it's sort of textbook, really, these burglaries, peeping Tom, voyeurism, then moving on to sexual assault, murder, and a necrophilia for him as well. It is kind of um, a well-trodden path, very sadly. Mm-hmm. Um, it's possible, yeah, of course it is possible that he did commit other murders, particularly in 1988, in the 12 months following Caroline's murder, but preceding the commencement of his employment at the Kenton mm-hmm. Sussex Hospital. We'll never know that. 
But maybe he just about was able to keep a lid on things for 12 months because he had just got married around the time of murdering Caroline Pierce. So maybe he was able to engage in some role play with his wife at that time, which satisfied his urges. I don't know enough for a period of time. Who knows? And uh, finally, Dr. Richard Badcock, a consultant forensic psychiatrist whose work for the police includes assessing Harold Shipman, regards Fuller's offences in the mortuary as psychologically more extreme than murder, saying necrophilia, that's it, there's nowhere to go after that. And you can't really argue with that, can you? So, so very interesting that there's an awful lot to this case. There was only, you know, so much I could really go into. Um, I've covered everything, but not in as much detail. I've not gone into more detail. I think it's enough just to even have your imagination so god a truly sick individual and a truly sick case and i'm just desperately hoping we have something not quite as grotesque as this next week bethan yeah i'll, I'll try and find something somehow more light-hearted i might do a little heist or yeah. art robbery or something where no one dies again just just to give us a bit of relief from this yes please Okay, well, thank you for listening. I hope you did make it to the end. If you have any um, thoughts on this case or any thoughts on David Fuller, feel free to get in touch with us in all the usual ways. We're on Instagram, Facebook, obviously on Patreon as well. And you can also email us. Uh, I'll put the email address in our show notes. So so do get in touch and we'll, uh, we'll see you next week. Bye. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye. Uh-huh.